Take your Bible and open it with me now to the book of Joshua as we continue our series, Courage Over Fear. We've made our way to chapter 7, and we'll begin in a moment in verse 1. Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I have said many times that Satan's strongest punch is his counter punch. What do I mean by that? Well, you experience an important victory in your life. You achieve something you strive for. You overcome some obstacle. Maybe God uses you in a great way. And just at that moment when you are ready to raise your arms in victory, that's when he hits you with his counter punch. And this is something that we see over and over again in the Word of God. For example, in one moment we see Noah building the ark. And then you turn the page and there he is drunk. You see David and he is victorious over the Syrians and the Ammonites. And then you turn around and there's his sin with Bathsheba. You see Peter and he confesses and says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And moments later, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. It is amazing how quickly that counterpunch comes. It's amazing how quickly defeat can follow victory. We see, see, so, we see something very similar in our passage that we're going to study today. For six chapters in Joshua, everything is going great. In chapter 1, God encourages Joshua. He says, be strong and courageous. In chapter 2, we see the salvation of Rahab. Then we read about the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, the memorial stones. Two weeks ago, we read about the battle of Jericho, the very first battle that Israel fought after entering the promised land. And by God's grace, they were victorious. And then comes chapter 7. And in chapter 7, Israel fought a battle against a little town called Ai, just two letters. And it's the only battle that Israel lost in the book of Joshua. Just like the battle of Jericho was a battle that they had no business winning, the battle of Ai was a battle they had no business losing. They had superior numbers, they had all of the advantages, and they lost anyway. The Christian life, of course, is full of battles, but let me just ask you a question. Have you ever lost a battle in your life that you knew in your heart you should have won? Maybe you repeated a mistake that you knew you would never make again, and yet you did? Maybe you failed in the one area of your life where you thought it wasn't possible. You thought, well, I might fail in any other area of my life, but not in this area until you did. You know, losing any battle is hard enough, but when you lose a battle that you know you should have won, it is especially difficult 
And so as we read this story in Joshua 7 about this loss that Israel experienced, I want us to see three ways in which we can respond to that defeat so that we can learn from it and so that we can overcome it. And when you lose the battle, you should have won. First of all, self-reliance must be confronted. Self-reliance must be confronted. Self-reliance, that tendency that we have to trust in ourselves instead of trusting in God. And self-reliance is all over Joshua chapter 7. Look at verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. You will recall in chapter 6 that before the battle of Jericho, God told the people that they were not allowed to take any of the spoils of war. Well, it turns out after the battle, there was one man who disobeyed that command, and his name was Achan. You know what the name Achan literally means? It means trouble. Names are very important in the Bible. What were his parents thinking when they decided to name him Trouble? I'll tell you what I think. If you name your kid Trouble, you are asking for trouble, and you deserve the trouble you get. That's what I think. But more about him in a moment. Look at verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. I want you to notice what Joshua does here. Just like the battle of Jericho, before the battle, he sent spies into the city. And once again, the spies come back. They bring their report. They basically said, hey, this is going to be a piece of cake. Let's not even bother the entire army. We got this. It's kind of like many people who have the same attitude. Trust God with the big stuff and don't sweat the small stuff. Well, newsflash, you better trust God with the small stuff, too. We see what Joshua did, but notice what Joshua does not do. He does not seek the Lord. He does not pray. Joshua was a man of prayer. We see this repeatedly in the book of Joshua. But chapter 7 is the exception. At no point do we see him calling upon the Lord, seeking his will, asking for directions. In fact, God is not even mentioned in their battle plan at all. At no point does anybody say, if it is God's will, if God be with us, this is what we will do. Kind of reminds me of the many times in our lives where we make decisions and we move forward. And I think, meanwhile, God is kind of looking down on us and he says, um, hey, guys, were you going to consult me about this at any moment? 
It's kind of what is happening here. Well, Dr. Phil likes to say, how's that working out for you? (laughs) How did that work out for them? Look at verse 5. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Oh, what should have been a a tremendous, complete victory for the people turned into this humiliating defeat. The Bible says that 36 men died, and that was absolutely a tragedy. I would point out 36 out of 3,000, what does that mean? Most of them just flat out ran. They fled. They lost a battle because they lacked courage. As we'll see, they lacked courage because God's favor was not upon them. God's favor was not upon them, I propose, because they were trusting in themselves rather than trust in God. And here is Joshua's response in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Now he starts to pray. Notice he fell to the earth and he stayed there until evening. He and the elders of Israel, they are in this position of prayer, face on the ground, crying out to God all of this time. So let me just ask you a question. What if Joshua had prayed before the battle instead of after the battle? What if at some point Joshua would have gotten alone with God and got on his knees and said, God, thank you for that victory you gave us over Jericho. You did it. You deserve the glory. But God, we've got another battle that we've got to fight. And this may be a small town, but we still need you. We need your wisdom. We need your direction. We need to know your will, what it is you want us to do. We need you to go before us and fight for us. Don't you think if Joshua had done that, that God would have said to him, Stop! Don't go into battle. I'm not with you because there is sin in the camp. Of course he would have. You see, Joshua planned without praying. He planned. Planning is important. We should make plans. We're told this repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. Planning is important. But if we plan without praying, planning without praying leads to suffering. All the best laid plans in the world, unless they are preceded by prayer and saturated with prayer, will lead to failure. They'll lead to suffering. And verse 7 tells us the content of Joshua's prayer. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? You notice the tone in this prayer? 
Joshua is blaming God for this defeat as if it is God's fault, as if God had failed. The problem is not that God had failed. The problem is they did not seek him and therefore God did not go with them. And so God is teaching them what happens when you go into the battle alone without God's help, without God's presence, without God's power. You see, Joshua is confused because he doesn't know what God knows. God knows that someone took the spoils of war after the battle of Jericho. God knows that there is sin in the camp. And if God were to keep on blessing them in spite of that sin, he would not be helping them. He would actually be hurting them. So when we lose those battles that we should have won, it may be because of a spirit of self-reliance. It may be that we are doing what Joshua did. Maybe we are planning without praying. Maybe we need to acknowledge that we have not properly sought the Lord or His will or His word, and that self-reliance must be confronted. Well, there's something else that needs to happen when you, you lose a battle that you should have won. Disobedience must be identified. Disobedience must be identified. Look at verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? It makes me smile every time I read that verse. God lets Joshua have his pity party. He lets him get it all out of his system. And then finally God answers his prayer and God's answer to Joshua's prayer is get up. I wonder how many times we pray, we're feeling sorry for ourselves when really it's our fault. But we pray and God answers and through that still small voice, he says, get up, get to work, do what I told you to do and stop pouting. Well, God tells Joshua what the real problem is in verse 11. He says, Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Now, before the battle of Jericho, again, God gave his instructions, and they were very clear. Everyone understood. The problem was not that they were unaware that they were not allowed to take these things. The problem was not ignorance. The problem was simply rebellion. And there's something very important that I want you to notice about the verbs here that God is using. Notice God said that Israel sinned, they transgressed, they took the accursed things, they stole, and they deceived. But as we'll see in a moment, it was one man who did all of these things, Achan. So if one man did all of this, why does God keep saying, they did this, they did that? Well, God does it this way because God is dealing with them and God is speaking to them corporately as a group, as a people. Now, this is against the way we normally think. We normally think individually. We think about the, the person. 
most of the time in Scripture, we see God dealing with us collectively. And the fact of the matter is, we are part of a group as believers. We are part of the body of Christ. And it is just the reality that the sin of one member affects all of the others. It has always been this way. You think about how David's sin affected all of Israel. You think about how Abraham's sin affected all of history. You think about how Adam's sin affected all of creation. And here in Joshua chapter 7, the sin of one man affected everyone else because of, of Achan's sin 36 wives lost their husband, and in 36 homes, children lost their fathers. In the verses that follow, God told Joshua to make a very important announcement. He said, Joshua, you tell the people, sanctify yourselves, because tomorrow morning, I'm going to reveal who it was who took the spoils of war. God even told Joshua how he was going to go about doing it. He said, first, I'm going to reveal which tribe it was. Then I'm going to reveal which family it was. Then I'm going to reveal which household it was. And then I'm going to reveal which man it was. And so God just keeps narrowing it down more and more and more and more. Now, the text does not explicitly say this, but I personally believe, I really believe God did it in this way, because he was giving Achan every last opportunity to repent. And to a lot of people, the thing that Achan did doesn't seem like a big deal. Somebody might say, oh, soldiers have always wanted the spoils of war. Well, number one, it is a big deal. But number two, it's not just that he sinned. It's the fact that even though God gave him these opportunities to repent, he absolutely refused to do so. At any point, he could have, during that night or even that morning, he could have stepped forward and said, it was me. But he would not do it. Well, morning came, and just like God said, you read through the chapter, it was revealed that Achan was the guilty man. The Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. You realize that's like the law of gravity, just as real. You can count on it. Be sure your sin will find you out. Achan's sin found him out. Look at verse 19. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. Achan finally confessed his sin, but can we all agree that he only confessed his sin because he was caught? He gets caught, 
He confesses the sin, but as he's describing what he did, I want you to notice that there is a progression here. Notice again in verse 21, he says, I saw the spoils, the garment, silver and gold. I saw, I coveted them, I took them, and they are hidden. So he saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. One step leads to the next, which leads to the next. This is what I call the DNA of temptation. If you want to know how temptation works, how the enemy uses it in our lives to ensnare us, here it is. And when you hear Achan's confession and how he followed this path, you can't help but notice how similar it is to something else that we read in the Word of God in the New Testament in the book of James. James describes how temptation works in our lives. And I want to read to you what James said in James 1.14, and I want you to notice how similar this is to what Achan said in Joshua chapter 7. But in James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Notice when one is tempted, he said it starts with desire. Achan saw something desirable. And do you realize there was nothing inherently wrong with the things that he desired? There was nothing wrong with in general, having a Babylonian garment, if you could get your hands on one, if you saw one at a store, nothing wrong with having silver or gold, nothing wrong with these things. And you know how we know that? Because right after the battle of Jericho, God gave them permission to keep the spoils of war, which means if Achan would have just waited a little bit if he would have just waited a few more days, if he would have waited one more chapter, he would have had everything he wanted, and even more, he wouldn't have to hide it. But it starts with desire. Then James said, he's drawn away and he's enticed. Temptation entices us. It takes those natural desires that are good and entices us to fulfill them in inappropriate, evil ways. We have a word for that. We call that deceit. For example, the desire to eat is good. Gluttony is not. The desire to sleep is fine. Laziness is not. The desire for sex is healthy. Sexual immorality is not. And what happens when we follow this path of, of deceit, what starts with desire leads to deceit. And then James said in verse 15, it gives birth to sin, which means a decision is made to break God's law and do what God told us not to do. What happens when a person makes that decision and they do not deal with their sin? What happens when, like Achan, they try to cover up, they try to hide their sin, and they will not confess it, they will not repent of it? James said, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Desire, deceit, leading to a decision, leading to death. 
This is how temptation works. We see this exact same pattern in Achan's confession in Joshua chapter 7. By the way, we also see this in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. We see this several other times in the Bible. We see this in our own lives as well. Every now and then I'll hear somebody say, well, you know, so-and-so fell into sin. Have you heard that phrase? No one falls into sin. You slide into sin. There is a progression of temptation that takes place. And when that happens, we have to identify that. We have to identify that disobedience so that we can turn from it because until we do, we forfeit the blessings of God and the power of God in our lives. I want you to notice what God told Joshua at the very end of verse 12. Because of what had happened, God said, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. So they not only lost this battle, but God said, hey, by the way, you're not going to win the next battle either, or the one after that, or the one after that, until you take care of this. I've said many times, God loves us too much to let us sin successfully. Like a loving father, he disciplines his children because he knows what is best for us. And so when you lose that battle, you know you should have won. Self-reliance must be confronted disobedience must be identified but then we also see that sin must be abandoned sin must be abandoned it's not enough just to identify that sin in our lives there must be repentance and in this case we come to the end of the chapter it appears that the thing that had to be removed was that person who refused to repent Notice what it says in verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, and after they had stoned them with stones. Somebody summarized this story by saying, Achan got what he want, and then he lost what he had. He got what he, want, want what he wanted, and then he lost what he had. That's so true. This is another one of those passages that a lot of people struggle with, and a lot of folks uh, uh, struggle with this for a lot of reasons. We see his family, were, they were affected as well. Now, I would point out that they were likely accomplices. If he buried all of that beneath his tent, they knew. I imagine they were old enough to be accountable, but some people will say, oh, pastor, this just seems so severe. People ask the question, is this fair? We ask that question because we have a very small view of God and His holiness. If we could just begin to understand how big God is, how great God is, how holy and how pure God is, and how hideous our sin is in His sight, how serious is our rebellion against God, if we could understand that, we would not ask 
that question. But God did what he did in this passage because the people, the entire nation, needed to learn a lesson. They needed to learn that sin leads to death, that the wages of sin is death. They needed to understand, and we need to understand God's wrath towards sin. And the reason why we need to understand God's wrath towards sin is because at the heart of the gospel, God's wrath was placed upon Jesus when he took our punishment and died on the cross for us. And it is because God's wrath was already placed on Christ that now the believer can say, just like Paul said in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I tell you this because some of y'all might read this story and and read about Achan and what he did and what happened, and you might say, oh, no, pastor, I've done a lot worse than that. Maybe so. But because God's wrath was placed upon Jesus at the cross, that means God's wrath does not abide on us as believers. And through Jesus Christ, listen, God will take even our worst failures, and he will turn them into a testimony of grace. There's one other detail I just have to share with you before I close. At the very end of this chapter, I want you to notice this in verse 26. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, to this day. You remember at the very beginning of this message when I told you what Achan's name means, that his name literally means trouble? Notice the name of the valley. It's called the Valley of Achor. Well, what's the big deal? In the Hebrew, Achan and Achor are the same word. Do you realize what they did here? They named this valley after him. The Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achan. The Valley of Trouble. So you have this valley. It was named after Achan. And did you know that outside of the book of Joshua, this valley is mentioned just two other times? Now, I'm not going to read Isaiah 65, but in Isaiah 65, uh, God said that one day the valley of Achan will be a place where uh, the herds of God's people will gather and uh, where his people can find rest, those who sought him. It'll be a place of, of blessing. But I want to read to you what the prophet Hosea said and what God said through him in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. And notice what God said about this valley and what God is going to do with this valley that was named after Achan. It says, I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth 
as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. How I hope you can see the beauty that this is. God said that this valley of Achor, this valley of Achan, this valley of trouble will one day become a what? A door of hope. And what will happen there one day? What will we do there? God said, we will sing. God takes the place of their defeat and he turns it into a place of hope, a place of salvation, and a place of victory. And I promise you, if you'll come to Christ, if you'll receive him as Lord, Savior of your life, God will do the same in your life today. God will turn your guilt into innocence. And he will, deter, he will turn your defeat into victory. Join me as we pray. God, how we thank you for this story. And how we thank you that you are able to take even our worst defeats and turn them into a testimony that though we be in the valley of trouble, you can turn that place into a place of hope and singing and salvation. God, I know all of us at some point, we have failed. We have all lost battles that we should have won. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us this morning to take what we've read and heard and apply it to our lives and if there is an area of self-reliance, if we're guilty of trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you, God, would you show us and reveal that to us so that we can confess and repent of that sin this morning? And God, would you show us and help us to identify those areas of disobedience in our lives? Maybe some folks here today are flirting with temptation. And God, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us if, to, to recognize that and turn from that. But Father, help us to identify uh, the areas of disobedience so that we can then repent of our sin. And Father, I pray for those who are here today, even now, who are very much like Achan. That night before his sin was uncovered, you are even now giving to them an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to be saved. And so God, I pray that in this moment you would convict them and knock on the door of their heart that they would not wait another day because maybe just like Achan, they don't have another day. But you've given them this day, you've given them this moment, this opportunity to turn from their sin and say, I will follow Christ. And so God, I pray that you would convict hearts and that you would show all of us what you want us to do in these moments. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.